Okay, everybody, welcome. Welcome, everybody. It is wonderful to have you with us. Uh, Why? Well, it's a full house tonight. Well, full chairs, mostly. And uh, want to see new faces? The free brownies? Who brought brownies and I haven't been given any? All right. Um, brought my Hebrew Bible tonight, which means we obviously won't need it. So I'll put that, I'll put that down. Um, all right. Um, we're going to pray. And then we get, we're going to try and accomplish something slightly ridiculous today. We're going to try and cover the best part of two chapters. Yeah, stop it. Stop it. Um, uh, and uh, just a uh, heads up so you know where we're going in, uh, for the rest of um, this calendar year. Uh, this is going to be the last Bible study on Ecclesiastes for a while. But next week, Pastor Neil is going to be doing a Bible study. Yay! You guys are well trained. Look at you. Um, we've got um, uh, Curiosities Concerning the Church Calendar. Is that what we've got? And um, so we thought uh, it would be great to uh, just introduce this subject at the start of Advent, which of course is for those of you church calendar aficionados, the start of the church year. And um, we follow a, a fairly robust, I think, church calendar, at least within our Reformed tradition. And Pastor Neil is going to be talking to us about what's the rationale for that and where it comes from biblically and theologically and what's its benefits and pastorally, what, how it can help us. And uh, anything else that I should be saying about it, Pastor Neil? That's plenty for you. <laughs> you may have to do that. Yeah, have you heard the story about the speechwriter? So there's this speechwriter, okay, it's a true story. Uh, apparently he was really badly treated by his boss, who was some politician, and when the speechwriter resigned, or was about to resign, he wrote a speech for his boss, some politician somewhere, in which the first page was this long list of, we're going to solve this problem and this problem, and in my speech today I'm going to explain how we're going to fix everything, basically. And then the, the um, politician turns over, turns over the page, and at the top of it it says, you're on your own now, mate. <laughs> Always be kind to your speechwriters. So Pastor Neil tomorrow is going to solve, uh, <laughs> next week he's going to explain the incarnation to me and then to you all. Um, all right, enough of this frolicking. Um, it does say in Ecclesiastes it's good to rejoice and be happy in what the Lord has given us. There we are, we're just obeying the Bible. Let's pray and then we'll begin. Merciful Father, we're grateful to you for our fellowship in Christ, for every good gift that comes to us. We thank you for the approaching season of Advent and Christmas uh, for the, uh, the time of thanksgiving, both the festival so named and also the Christian festivals that lie beyond it. And tonight, as we come to your word, we do so with a spirit of thanksgiving and also with trembling, uh, knowing that in many ways it's beyond us. And certainly when we do grasp its content in this book, Ecclesiastes, it is bewildering and uh, disturbing at times. So please would you, uh, one and the same time, keep us joyful at being in your presence and having your word and sober us appropriately as we discover uh, the strange and challenging things that lie before us uh, in this part of your word, the Bible. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick up halfway through last week's reading at verse 19, which I think is about where we got to. Um, then I'm going to read all the way through to the end of chapter 8. So I'll read it. And then I'll talk about the, the theme that I'd, I'd like us to explore. And then we're going to jump in, especially at the end of chapter 7. I'll make some comments about chapter 8, and that will be helpful, I think, as well. I hope it will be helpful. But here goes. We're going to read first. 
Ecclesiastes 7.19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you have yourself cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and very and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man has power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place, and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth and that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this also is vanity and I commend joy for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out, the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. 
So, let me introduce what I'd like to talk about today and try and connect it to what we were talking about last week by beginning with what I think may be an apocryphal story. I've not been able to check whether it actually happened, but it's been so widely repeated that it probably isn't true. Uh, It might be true. Uh, The story goes that the Times newspaper in London uh, ran a feature in which they invited famous writers to answer the question, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton responded with the shortest essay of the collection. Uh, He wrote simply, I am your sincerely G.K. Chesterton. Now, like I said, I'm not sure that that's true. I don't like repeating memes off the internet without actually having seen the source. And I couldn't find a source from the Times. that. And I've seen a version of the story where it's an essay competition or where it's a letter in response to an article. And so it makes me think maybe it's apocryphal. But even if it is an apocryphal tale, it reflects something quite significant, which leads us to what we're thinking about this evening. You'll recall last week, I said, if there was a title to last week's Bible study, it'd be something like, that's not fair. And we began by reflecting on some aspects of life, in some cases, quite close to us that that don't seem fair. And generalizing that to the generalized unfairness of life. And those themes are picked up here in this passage that we read. The theme dominates chapters 7 and 8. But in the portion that we're reading today, we start to see both something about the source of that unfairness and perhaps hints at its, well, if I say solution, that sounds too trite, but certainly how it's resolved in God's purposes. Um, The source of all the unfairness in the world In the end, if you're going to stop one step short from God's decree, and ultimately the explanation for everything is God's decree, God decided, but if you stop one step short of that, what's the sub-ultimate cause of all of the unfairness in the world? The answer is highlighted right in the the centre of this passage, right in the centre of the book, end of chapter 7, which is a... At the very least, a sharp-edged allusion to the sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. All the trouble in the world, in the end, as far as human activity goes, can be traced back there. And so this passage develops the theme of the unfairness of the world, but connects it to that source of the problem. What's wrong with the world? I am is a confession of moral culpability, of personal responsibility for everything that's going wrong. And Chesterton, of course, if the account is true, and even if it's not, the theme suggests that we should be identifying ourselves with the wise essayist, or perhaps the wise king, the preacher, Kohelet, the one who gathers the assembly and saying, so what's wrong with the world then, everybody? And all the people said, I am. There is a sense in which we are the problem. And this passage will will start to explore that. Of course, I am 
in biblical terms also refers to something else. Let's have one of the children, younger people. Um, and you guys are so grown up in Bible and theology class, you hardly count as a child anymore. But somebody tell me, if who is I am in the Bible? God, yes. Exodus chapter 3. Um, who shall I say has sent me to the Israelites? Okay, this is my name. I am. And, of course, it's a name taken up by somebody else, uh, somewhat later than Moses. You may speak. <laughs> Who else says, I am? The way, the truth, the life, the light of the world, the everything else. Jesus, thank you. Um, <laughs> another story about a squirrel, but I won't mention it here. Ask me later about the squirrel. Anyway, back on track. Um, I am is Chesterton's way of pointing not just, if it's truly Chesterton, not just to the source of the problem, but to its resolution. I am will address the horrors of the injustice that our sin has caused. So if we view this passage that way, it's almost like the gospel in a nutshell, in a sense, isn't it? It's, it's inviting us to reflect on our culpability for all the chaos that we see around us and to turn to the only one who can fix it, I am. Now just let me sketch a couple of other things before we jump in. Um, I don't know, firstly, whether chapter 7 verse 19 and chapter 8 verse 17, the end of the passage, form kind of literary brackets, the wise man in chapter 7, verse 19, and the wise man at the end. But even if they're not a kind of literary inclusio, is the technical term, like the beginning and the end at match, to, to bracket a section together, even if they're not, it is interesting, isn't it, to notice um, the optimism of chapter 7, verse 19, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. And wouldn't it be great if you had that kind of wisdom that was better than being ten kings? But then, by the end of the passage, and it is, I think, a coherent section, uh, even though a wise man claims to know, he can't find it out. So we can expect, I'm afraid... By the time we depart today, the same kind of tension in our hearts, the, the, the bewilderment of not being able to figure this stuff out again, and then your, pastor, your pastors will be encouraging you to leave with joy in your hearts nonetheless, you know, rejoicing in all that God has given us, even though we can't figure it all out. That's the first observation I want to make. That's like the big picture. We're not solving anything today. We won't be able to figure it out. Relax. And we'll find echoes of that in the passage as well. First. Second, before we jump into the detail of chapter 7, just look at chapter 8 with me, where you notice a number of uh, scenes or cameos that are depicted by... Solomon, the preacher, the one who gathers the assembly, in which he sees 
unfairness, which is in some way connected with human sin. Let me show you a couple. Um, Chapter 8, verse 10. I saw the wicked buried. Hmm, it's interesting. There's There's a wicked man's funeral. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. Well, that's not just unfair, is it? That's stupid. That's moral culpability. That's foolishness of the Proverbs type, isn't it? It's not just, oh, I made a mistake. You praised a wicked man. Who, who on earth are you, foolish congregation gathered by the one who gathers the congregation? You know, they, used to be, they used to sing the praises of this wicked man. And now here they are at his funeral, singing his praises again. And more than that, they used to go in and out of the holy place. It's a picture of a man who is respected among the religious leaders, isn't it? Honoured seats in the synagogue, the holy place, presumably something to do with the temple. I mean, that's what, when you say holy place and you're King Solomon, that's what you're talking about. Goodness gracious, we've got a community that's so messed up that they praise wicked men and endorse their um, religious leadership. It's just foolishness, isn't it? It's culpable stupidity. So, so when, when you do that, if we're part of a community that does such foolish things, expect bad things to happen. Similarly, verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Just talk me through that. Come on, somebody else explain. What, what is the scene that's described here? Go on. Yeah. Right. Right. Yes. It's a failure of justice. I mean, here it's like it's that kind of situation. You know, somebody who's obviously done wrong, he's been found guilty, and then he just the appeals process drags on and on and on, and justice is mocked as we all pay for his incarceration, fifty-five thousand dollars a year. Of course, there are other ways in which injustice could be um, perpetrated like that, when. The sentence against an evil deed is not executed at all. Um, when the courts don't just find the right verdict and then delay its execution, but they just find the wrong verdict. And what happens as a consequence? End of the verse, end of verse 11. What's the result of this? What happens in a society where injustice like this flourishes? Encourages more evil doing. Right, encourages more evil doing. Well, why is there so much wickedness in the world? Like, well, here's a thought. Because you don't punish the wickedness that's already here. Um, You hear examples of this all the time. The the most egregious example that I can think of from my own experience um, relates to um, uh, divorce proceedings in Britain. Now, I discovered today that it's very different, at least in some parts of the US. But it's common in uh, divorce proceedings in the UK. 
and in some parts of America, I think, for the innocent party, the wronged party in a divorce, to suffer grievously at the hands of the divorce courts. And let's say, you know, the husband who's unfaithful just wanders off with all the earning capacity because his wife has stayed at home looking after the children and not developed her career and her earning power. The husband wanders off with all the cash and half the assets or three-quarters of the assets. And I know of instances where it seems pretty obvious. I personally have instances where it seems pretty obvious that the husband has hidden assets from the court. And even when alimony is awarded, the rates of payment are like a quarter or 20% of what they ought to be. Um, so the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily that justice is not done and so surprise surprise the world is full of wronged people the world is full of victims of wrongdoing can you see what's starting to happen Solomon is he's not just wondering about where all this wickedness comes from you know he's telling you telling us what's wrong with the world I am. Another cameo a bit later, and a more general, verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. This also is hevel. This is vanity. This isn't how it ought to be. Yeah. So can you start to see there are um, concrete instances, especially those first two, where there's some connection between the injustice of the world we find ourselves in. It's just not fair. And actual human sinfulness. Now, before we come to chapter 7, one more comment. This connection raises a question in people's minds. It's often asked by, by thoughtful inquirers about the Christian faith. And it takes various forms, but it might go something like this. Um, is it true that um, if something bad happens to me, it must be because I've done something bad to deserve it? Can you see? Um, he will begin with the biblical observation that there is some connection between uh, injustice, catastrophe, bad things happening, and human sinfulness. There's some connection. And obviously there's some connection. Genesis chapter 3, um, Ecclesiastes. People doing bad things, bad things happening. And so the question arises, well, something bad's happened to me. Is God punishing me for some bad thing that I've done? Does the question seem familiar? You've come across the question? Maybe you've asked it yourself. Maybe people have wondered about it. Now, we do need to sort this out before we go any further. What's the answer to that question? If something bad happens to you, something painful, something traumatic, something... uh, deeply tragic to you or your family is that because you've done something evil to deserve it yes or no it depends 
<laughs> We've got a bunch of no's, and then one or two it depends is. Samuel? Well, it's like what uh, was asked of Jesus by the Pharisees and the blind man. What, mm. did, what sin did his parents commit that he should be born blind? Right, very good. Jesus and the man born blind in which chapter of which gospel? Come on. Uh, teenagers, which chapter of which gospel? What's up with you? Come on. Luke, almost. That's the other one. Luke 13. The tower and the sacrifices. Well done. John, nine. Well done. Who said nine? Yeah. <laughs> Pastor's wife. Pastor's wife said now, now what we're going to turn to, to, um, to John nine. I want to show you this, and because it's really, it's really important pastorally, but it's actually quite important to capture the the nuance that Mrs. Clackhorn you highlighted, where you said it depends. <coughs> Let's just look at um, John nine. Turn with me to John nine. John nine verse one. Uh, As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, evidently making the assumption that the question that we've been thinking about the last couple of minutes embodies. His disciples said, they see this guy blind from birth, and they said, well, Rabbi, who sinned? Was it his fault? Or was it his parents' fault that he was born blind? The assumption, of course, being that it must be somebody's fault, And it must be somebody who is personally hurt or grieved in some way by this. So it's either him or his parents, because presumably nobody else cares about him, like blind man just sitting there. Can you see the assumption that's behind the question? The assumption is, well, something tragic, terrible has happened. It must be some somebody's fault who's personally hurt by this. And Jesus says, verse 3, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Which means that here we have a person to whom something tragic has happened, and it's not because he sinned, and it's not because his parents sinned. Jesus here breaks the connection, the necessary connection between committing evil and experiencing tragedy. But, Mrs. Claghorn, does that mean it's never the case? Can you see? Right? It depends. Is it possible that God might so love you that you do experience his fatherly chastisement in the form of some temporal dare we say judgment? Right, of course it's possible. Jesus doesn't deny that it ever happens. He just says not, not this time, which means it's not always the case. So what that means is we should at that point be on the lookout. Not anxious, fearful, thinking I've definitely sinned, but actually the attitude we should always have of self-examination and confession. and Because actually if... If things are going well with us, we ought to be examining ourselves because sometimes it goes with the wicked as it ought to go with the righteous. You're having a great time and it's all fine, but actually you're wicked. 
an evil, Ecclesiastes chapter 8. So it's not the case that something tragic happens and you automatically infer that I must have done something to deserve this. I must be such a wicked sinner. Yeah. Now, forgive me, Samuel, you had your hand up a moment ago. Yeah, yeah. well, in, in regards to all that, um, with depending on whether the sin, think about it like um, in the case of uh, Israel during the time of the judges, every time right. they right. screwed up, the Lord would send the Moabites and the Midianites to set them straight. Or like in the case of Job, hmm. who suffered on account of a dare... Yeah, yes. So you've got, and it's great, great examples, the judges, the era of the judges, where the people were supposed to have inferred that they'd done something wrong from the chastisement that the Lord brought against them. But Job is a righteous man. So, yeah, very good. Thank you. Hannah, yes. Could it be Satan's fault? Well, that's a great way of describing the situation with Job, isn't it? Now, in a sense... If it's Satan, it's also God permitting the sa- uh, Satan to act, isn't it? Um, remember Ephesians? The purpose of the church is to display the glorious plan of God to the powers of the heavens. What if God wants to show Satan the faithfulness and righteousness and long-suffering patience of one of his beloved children? to show the power of Christ in them. So he afflicts them with something that they don't deserve for something special that they've done. God is just using them in his mysterious purposes. Yeah. What if? Yeah, Jack? Is it like, um, he could be using them to like, show like perseverance? Mm. Yeah, to show perseverance, show his people can deal with those things. Very good, yeah. And of course we don't, it's not always obvious to us what God's doing, is it? In fact, mostly it's not obvious at the time. Um, But yeah, we can't have this simplistic connection between some personal tragedy and I must have done something to deserve this. God's ways are mysterious. And there are many, many reasons why in his sovereign purposes he might bring these things about there's one in particular though and mrs fraser was it you who said luke's gospel yeah luke 13 turn with me to luke 13 if you would these two passages between them john 9 and luke 13 provide a kind of biblical uh lens through which to view what we're talking about in ecclesiastes and it's just another one of those situations where i really want to make sure we, we get this clear before we dive into the confusion, because I don't want you to leave any more confused than you arrived. <laughs> we won't have solved everything, but I don't want to make matters worse, um, especially about something that's so significant. Here, um, Luke introduces a very strange conversation. Uh, he, Jesus appears to be just teaching and um, talking to his disciples and the crowds at the end of chapter 12, He's um, laying a few things on the line. And Luke notes in chapter 13, verse 1, there were some present at that time who told him about something tragic that had happened. 
the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. It seems that what had happened was there'd been some kind of massacre of worshippers, Galilean worshippers, that Pilate, the governor, had orchestrated while they were worshipping God. So they're, they're worshipping God, sacrificing to him, and in this terrible image, Luke says their own blood was mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? And all the disciples are thinking, well, yeah, obviously, because who sinned? This man or his parents. And Jesus says, no. But you notice he doesn't stop there. He wants us to draw out another lesson from, in this case, the tragedies that afflict others. Look, verse 3, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So it turns out that these tragedies have potentially another function to alert us to the potential eternal ruinous effects of our own sin. So think of it like this. Were these Galileans really, really bad sinners? Is that why they died in this way? No, no. But if you're a really bad sinner, then you'll perish someday. And then he repeats the lesson with another episode. Verse 4, Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Clearly another disaster that happened. It's impossible to imagine all kinds of things. But uh, a collapsing building, killing 18 people. Do you think there were any worse than anybody else who lived in Jerusalem? And then he just draws the same lesson, verse 5. No, but unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. So can you see what's going on? Uh, got a question coming in, but just one second later on. Thank you. Um, it's, it's not the case, John 9, that we automatically infer my suffering means I've sinned. But we're always watching ourselves, aren't we? Recognizing that God could be doing all kinds of things. Job, judges. And the horrors that we see around us are actually, in some sense, a picture of the final judgment that unrepentant sin deserves. You will likewise perish unless you repent. And Jesus doesn't sort of soft soap it. I, I don't think it's just because he's in a particular fi- particularly feisty mood today. It's, he, he wants us to, to see this. Now, I've got a couple of hands up. Pastor Neil, then we go to Aaron, the question online. Yeah, Pastor Neil, please. Uh, at, at the risk of mucking this up a little bit, Mm-mm. With the hope of pointing out the texture of this, amen, no straight line, Hmm. can we get back to the cause of this misery? There are passages in the Bible that do point out um, consequences of disobedience. Hmm. For example, Psalm 32, when I (laughs) kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Hmm. There is a direct correlation there. When someone does not confess sin, things are going to happen. It makes us remind us of Romans 1. Yes. Certain people in their own persons receiving the due penalty of their error. Right, right, right. James 5, when someone is sick and they call for the elders of the church, they are given opportunity to confess their sin. Because sometimes sin or ailment, illness... Uh, 
deterioration yes. is connected to sin. Yes. Uh, Deuteronomy 28, one of the curses is that a blight or a consumption will come upon you because you've turned away from mm. the Lord. And so you can sometimes see, you can look at Nabal, the fool, in 1 Samuel 25. The knucklehead, he's holding the party to himself. He clunks over and dies, likely due to his drunkenness. Mm. Mm. Um, there are stepstones in this part yes. of misery. Yeah. But to always say that because so and so has got a um, something, yeah, something, it's due to that. Um, yeah. No, I think that's profoundly helpful. So that is is fleshing out more of the ways in which you know there might just be a connection. Uh, just for the sake of folks at home who may not have caught that, um, uh, Psalm thirty-two. Um, when I kept silent and didn't confess my sin, I wasted away. Romans 1, receiving in themselves a due penalty for their perversion. James 5, the sick man whose sin is his own rebellion, is to blame for his own sin. Deuteronomy 28, covenant curses. First um, Samuel, remind me? Second Samuel, 25, yeah. First Samuel 25, um, Nabal, the fool. So, yes, it's, thank you so much for that. It's really helpful. And it's, it's interesting to me, come to the Aaron the question in a minute you, we've got you get John 9 no, no neither of them sinned and our temptation is just to say Phew, oh thank goodness and walk away and it's like no no there's there is more to it than that how deep how deep does this rabbit hole go do you want to go all the way down all into these passages that there is there are lessons to be learned here there's just not the iron cast connection and the temptation probably for some people, it will be to reproach ourselves. For others, it will actually be to, to point the finger at others and to assume that, well, this happened to them because of their sin. And, um, well, you can easily see the, the ruin that those kinds of attitudes could entail. Thank you very much. Um, Aaron, we got a question from one of our online viewers. You doubt there's a diagram for it? Yeah, correct. There's no diagram for this one. <laughs> I, I've moved the whiteboard away because l- l- lest I be tempted to try and simplify this. Um, Pastor Neil, do you want to speak to that? Because you, you raised those, those five <laughs> biblical texts. Um, just to paraphrase the question, make sure I've got it right. Um, so we've got friends, perhaps unbelieving friends, Nan mentioned, but maybe it's Christian friends, actually. Should we rush just to comfort somebody when actually it's possible that they are in Psalm 32, Romans 1, James 5, 1 Samuel 25, Deuteronomy 28 even. Do you have any thoughts on that? Jeff? Is this Nan's question? Yeah. No. It's Nan's question. <laughs> Pastor Neil doesn't have any thoughts for Nan. Sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, actually I would. Um, yeah. 7 Corinthians 6, it is possible to receive the grace of God in vain. So Do I come and speak to the microphone? Can I, can I urge you? You can repeat it. Okay. All right. Okay, go on. Yeah. So 1 Corinthians 6. Go on. Yeah. I, I would tend to think that our approach ought to be the same approach that Scripture 
comes to us. There are psalms where God addresses his people and talks about the failures of our fathers in the wilderness mm. and says, watch out, don't be this way. Yeah, is yeah. that a comfort? Yes. Is that a warning? Yes. Is it, so it's both at the same mm. time. And I, I keep thinking of Romans 15, 4. What was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Mm. And you think every Bible study, every sermon ought to be like scripture. What is it doing? It's yeah. doing the same thing scripture is doing. So sometimes scripture makes us very uncomfortable. Yes, yes. Sometimes we need that. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes it comforts us. Sometimes we're the same person. So is there a diagram? No. Is no. there a cook-together answer? I don't think mm, so. No. Yeah, no, I like that. And uh, I think I, I just add the point. So in addition to saying, yes, let's, let's search ourselves and consider the possibilities, I'd also want to say, irrespective of what the answer is, this is a, a tremendous opportunity for Christian growth. If, just imagine for a moment... If after a few days of heart searching and a hard conversation with one of your pastors and then your spouse, you came to the conclusion that actually perhaps the Lord is um, graciously chastising me for my sinful gossiping and goodness gracious. Isn't that just the moment that you really needed? On the last day, you'll look back on that period of time with gratitude and joy and thanksgiving that the Lord didn't just let you wander off the path. Um, I, I wonder whether it finds an echo. I was just thinking of this in, in Ecclesiastes just to get back to where we are going to spend the rest of our time. Um, just bear with me one moment. I was thinking of the, the hints here that the wise man or, or wisdom, the wise person, can make some progress in understanding their experience. And notwithstanding the end of chapter 8, verse 17, the wise man can't figure it out, there are hints that you can make some progress, aren't there? Um, 7.19, wisdom gives more strength to a wise man than ten rulers in a city. Um, uh, verse 25 to the end of chapter 7, we're going to come to, it's the, the disclosure of what's going on behind the scenes. It's an uncovering of a certain amount of wisdom. I think, um, yeah, but these are uh, painful circumstances are opportunities for Christian growth. Let's just put it that simply. Yeah. Having, a, having a tooth extracted... Somebody I know and love dearly had that nasty experience recently. She's like, oh, I wish it would just fall out. <laughs> um, well, here's a rare opportunity for you to trust Jesus to look after you. And it'll be fine. You'll get anaesthetic, but it's not nice. <coughs> Crunch. You know? But it's, these opportunities are potentially transformative, I think. So, 
Let me just pause there. I'm going to jump in next to the end of chapter seven, this, the heart of the book, really. But any, any other questions or comments at this stage? Um, yeah, please, go ahead. Thank you. Very good, very interesting. Wouldn't it be judgmental for us to say that, like, do what Job's friends did? You know. Let me let me give a, a brief answer to that, and uh, I think uh, yes, and that might be salutary. That might be salutary. That might be a good thing. Now, there's there's good judgment, and there's bad judgmentalism isn't there there's the leaping to conclusions that and Job's friends were not really there for him you know <laughs> and I think Nan's question raises a really interesting point you you want to be there for your friends but do you really want to soft soap something um, imagine a situation let's say that's a, that's a little bit like the Romans 1 situation where there is some intrinsic connection between the sinful behaviour and the outcome. Um, I'll, give you, I'll give you one example. Uh, one of my seminary profs years ago, 20 years ago nearly, he was teaching about qualifications for ministers. And he said, um, if a person who has a child, the child grows up to be an unbeliever, I can't remember the phrase, some self-examination is in order. And it's a very hard thing to hear. And there were men in the room who had unbelieving children. Pastors, wannabe pastors in the room. And it's not like he wasn't beating us up. He wasn't crushing our spirits. He wasn't. He was trying to say the hard thing. You know? He's not leaping to conclusions. But why, why, would you, why would you get this sharp edge of the scriptures, the sword of the spirit? So well, I'd, I'd like to round this bit off because otherwise it might cut me. <laughs> Actually, we, and frankly in that example, our children, stand to benefit tremendously if we're able to front up to that. Now, I, I want to generalise that everywhere. We've all had those experiences, haven't we, where something, it's not like Job, where we can't figure it out. It's more simple than that. We can see how actually it was our foolishness. I'm not thinking about that example now particularly. But I do think, you know, what's a good friend going to do then? Um, a good friend might come alongside you and put her arm around your shoulders and, and say, and cry with you a bit and pray with you a bit and then encourage you to look at a couple of things and wouldn't you wouldn't we thank them for that you know we we start to get real in our relationships then are you with me so it's not it's not judgmentalism yeah but we yeah it's hard to do we don't we need each other to to encourage and rebuke and challenge us and isn't that, 
if we all did that with love and prayerfulness, wouldn't, that, wouldn't we all grow wonderfully from that? I think we would. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. We're dealing with mysteries of God's providence, aren't we? Yes. And so, yeah. Well, um, and I'd want to say nothing to do with it. Yes. Is it the case that God uses created means to accomplish His sovereign purposes? Created means. Yes. I mean, so how does God... God has decreed from before the foundation of the world that, that you'll be saved. And somewhere along the line, the way he did that was to send somebody to preach the gospel to you or place you in a Christian home where you were raised and heard Christ. Can you see? So this is, this is why we're not leaping to conclusions. We're not making crass generalizations, but we're observing what we know about how God works and we're being ready to... What are we going to do? Rise above criticism? That's the alternative, isn't it? And we, come on. In our best moments, what do we want the Lord to do? Forgive Yes? <laughs> Forgive us for what exactly? For everything we've ever thought, did, or didn't do. Right. Yeah. And so for him to put his finger on something and say, you know, have you ever found, I mean, those of you who are parents, let's, let's scale it back a bit. Those of you who are parents, you've been un, unreasonable, unfair, grumpy, angry, harsh to your children. And then about five minutes later when you've cooled down, you, you, the Lord lays it on your heart and it's like, you need to go and apologise. Like, you're like, I don't want to. <laughs> yeah? And what's the Lord doing? Well, he's just, it's like he, you know, I th- I th- the Lord does this in us and sometimes we do it through other people because it might be your wife who comes to you and says I think you need to go and apologise happened to us yeah so I, I... yeah yeah every day right um, yeah Aaron got another question coming in I'm really I'm really glad to hear these yeah go on. Let's go, Aaron. Yeah. Uh, question about the text. Oh, good. <laughs> Do you think that part of the strange relationship that the preacher seems to take with wisdom is that the unfairness of the world is most easily seen by those who are wise? To quote the greatest cinema of all time, with great power comes great responsibility. Only hear it, with great wisdom comes great heaven. Yeah, with great... Oh, I like that. With great wisdom comes great hevel. Yeah, so, so the wiser you are, the more you see the messed upness of the world. So who's the one who saw the chaos and carnage in the world most clearly? Jesus. Yeah, I like that. I hadn't thought of that. That's such a simple way of putting something complicated, isn't it? The one who sees most clearly how things are not as they ought to be is the one who sees all things rightly. Yeah, okay, I like that. All right, listen, I want to jump into 7.25 to, the, to 29. Um, 
I've, I've talked about this before, it's the middle of the book. It's the only place apart from the beginning and the end where Kohelet mentions his name, the preacher. Um, and it drives a nail through the bullseye of the heart of the problem that the whole book addresses. I turn my heart to know and search out and to seek and wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness of madness. Can you see what he's doing? He's building up to something. He's, he's drum roll in the background. Looking around and seeing where the heart of the problem is. And I find something, and this is just bizarre. What is more bitter than death? Jonathan, forgive me, by the way, you had a question. Can we come back to it? Thank you. Yeah. Um, I find something more bitter than death. I, I, I genuinely, you just read that. There's something more bitter than death. Really? What's worse than death? Hmm? Suffering. Suffering? Sin. Ethics question from Monday. Um, uh, what's better? To die or to sin? To die. It's better to die, which is not the same as saying it's better to commit suicide. It is better to die than to commit a single sin. Just think about that for a second. Same guy who said the thing about elders and David Field, the guy who half of you heard when he came on the reduced me to tears when I was commissioned here as one of the pastors alongside Pastor Neil. Um, one of my oldest friends and dear, dear man. It's better to die than to sin. And that's not because death is like um, nothing. It's death is terrible. There's something worse. But here, it's not quite sin, is it? I find something more bitter than death, the woman, whose heart is snares... <laughs> don't, don't snigger, ladies, okay? The, whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. It's not sin, is it? It's, in this case, the woman. Which woman is he thinking about? All the ones he married that he shouldn't have done, perhaps. Lady Folly, Proverbs 5 and 9 and elsewhere, Proverbs. One woman, anybody thinking? Eve, perhaps? Bathsheba, no, she's the innocent victim of yeah. Solomon's, yeah, of David's. Um, uh, yeah, um, perhaps Eve. But we'll come to that in a, in a few minutes. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. So it looks like this is the thing or the person, in Solomon's experience, who leads you to sin, whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters. What snares and nets, what do they do? Yeah, they catch you, entangle you. I saw an amazing video the other day of, of a, a device that some police officers use to catch cars that are running away, and they're like a car chase. And it's basically this net that is carried on a frame in front of the police vehicle, and the police vehicle basically rams the back of the car it's pursuing and the net gets entangled around the rear wheel of the car and then the police car will put its brakes on and that net that's entangled around the rear of the car is attached to the police car via a bungee cord. It's just genius. I mean, I'd, wouldn't you love to be an engineer who got to invent stuff like that? It's just so cool. And I saw videos of it working and it's just 
you need, whatever car you're driving, it's over at that point. Whatever truck you're driving trying to escape the police. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are chains. He who pleases God escapes her. But the sinner is taken by her. So Jack Claghorn, you're right in the end. The thing that's worse than death is sin. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher. While adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I've not found one man among a thousand I've found, but a woman among all these I've not found. See, climax, this alone have I found, that God made man upright. Turns out it's not just the woman who's to blame, after all. The woman is the one whose hands are snares and nets, heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. But the man has sought out many schemes. So what's the problem then? Abstractly, it's the temptation to sin and the succumbing to sin. Are you with me? If we abstract away from the particulars, it's the temptation, the snares and nets, and the seeking out the sin and committing it. Many schemes. Concretely, it's not just temptation and sin, it's the woman and man seeking out many schemes. So let's just think about this in relation to Solomon, and we'll probably find that it uncovers something about how these temptations can act upon us and let me scroll back a second or two. Um, the woman whose heart is snares and nets. Which woman? Uh, Miss Duke, you, were, you had a suggestion for us. Which word? Lady. Bathsheba. I said Bathsheba. You said Bathsheba. And then, but before that, you said oh, Lady Folly. Yes, sir, I did say Lady Yeah, Lady Folly. Turn back with me to um, uh, Proverbs, um, Solomon's, one of his other books. And there's all kinds of um, places we could go in this. But maybe Proverbs 9 is a good place to go. Um, the, the whole of the first nine chapters of Proverbs returns again and again to this overarching image of a young man whom Solomon calls my son, Facing a choice between two women, basically. It's, a, it's an un, it's inescapably kind of romantic um, metaphor. And you can see why it's the case, can't you? I mean, let's pick a couple of newlyweds, shall we? I mean, the, the intensity of uh, love as it starts to grow and your relationship builds and your brother's next to you and he's like yeah it was unbelievable listening to him droning on about Gracie this and Gracie that and Gracie the other thing from ever and ever and ever yeah Aaron yeah it's just like overwhelming isn't it it's settled down you don't love her less you love her more but it's just not quite so much like heart racing at 90 beats a minute the whole time every time you think of her which is mercifully it's like otherwise you, you, know, you can't cope with that the intensity of that w- wonderful attraction, but there's a, there's a 
a twisted and perverse version of the same attraction. And the uh, Proverbs 9 basically puts the two side by side. There's a, there's a number of um, places where it does, but this one is, is as good as any. Lady Wisdom first, chapter 9, verse 1. She's built her house. She's hewn her seven pillars. She's slaughtered her beast. She's mixed her wine. She's set her table. She sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. This is an invitation from a wonderful lady who's called Wisdom to come and discover wisdom. Wisdom is personified as a, a delightful dinner invitation. Which a thoughtful man might think, oh, this is going to be interesting and, and helpful and learning wisdom. Well, that might be slightly hard work, but I'd, that'd be excellent doing that. But there's another way which is just so much more um, short-term attractive, verse 13. Um, there's another woman. The woman folly is loud. She's seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house takes her seat on the highest place of the town, prominent, visible, inescapable, like those billboards that you drive past and they seem to be selling ladies' underwear, but they're not actually selling ladies' underwear. It's got women in underwear because it's selling insurance or selling you know, whatever else it is because everything apparently can be sold by pictures of women in underwear. It's like, what, what kind of world are we living in? You co- it's the world where, you, where sh- the woman folly sits in the highest places of the town and cannot be evaded unless you're willing to turn your head the other way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says. Notice that's exactly the same. Can you see? Isn't that astonishing? Whoever is simple, verse 4, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, verse 16. Exactly the same phrase. And it's just, isn't it bizarre? Of course it's bizarre. But it's exactly what you expect. Because sin doesn't come dressed in a kind of you know, filthy rag and say, hey, jump in. It's not like the devil is a deceiver. He clothes himself as an angel of light. And so the woman folly will say all the same things that the woman wisdom says. And so it's deceptive. Stolen water is sweet. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant. And she doesn't know that the dead are there. He, sorry, he doesn't know that the dead are there and her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Sheol. So, okay, there's a lot going on here. But notice the, a couple of things. The, the concrete metaphor of something attractive, firstly, which, secondly, says all the same things as something that's actually good for you. Temptation doesn't advertise itself as temptation. Um, Satan clothes himself as an angel of light. And dead people are there. Well, there's your link to um, Ecclesiastes. Something more bitter than death. Um, Aaron, there's a question coming in over the wires. I actually have a 
Okay, very good. I was just looking at it. Yes. Almost passing when you're looking at them. Like even when you talk about the, whoever sits with what I'm here has kind of the benchmark in which both of those sections, and they almost go together, it seems like. And then it ends up in the middle. I know we're not even talking about that, but it seems to be verse 10 or somewhere along there. But, I mean, to your point, what you're saying, um, they're contrasted. Even yes, yes. They're similar, but also in the way they're portrayed as similar. But yes. I don't know if there's anything there. No, I think you're right. The The... You're supposed to contrast them very sharply, and one way you know that is because there are similar elements there. So the similarities encourage you to put them side by side, and when you put them side by side, you notice the differences. Often that's the case with parallel structures in, in scriptural text. And you pointed out what's in the middle. Um, notice, um, remember where we were talking about before? Um, uh, the, the rebuking and the need to just take this one on the chin, and what is it Pastor Neil says, thank you, sir, please may I have another? <laughs> well, look, who are you going to be like? Verse 7, look, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. He who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. <laughs> don't bother. Don't, don't reprove a scoffer. He'll hate you. But reprove a wise man, and he'll love you. Yeah? So how can you tell whether somebody's wise or a scoffer? Well, one way is how they respond to reproof. Do, do, you, do you go looking for spiritual feedback? Do you ever do that? Um, we occasionally have these, especially after I've done some teaching on marriage. <laughs> we'll have these kind of conversations where I've encouraged all the guys to sit down with their wives and say, so... Um, take the initiative and say, um, can, t- tell me, are there any ways in which you think I could be a better husband? And then I realise I probably ought to do the same thing with my wife. So we sit down, we have these sort of um, spiritual feedback sessions. Be- people who don't ask for feedback rarely get better. Isn't that the case? Think of all the things that you've actually come to excel at, professionally or educationally. Haven't you, you've done that because somebody helped you, because you said, hey, can you help me to whatever it is you're doing? Yeah. Well, think about it like, um, when I did voice lessons, our voice teacher would gather us all together to practice our songs, and he would, you could tell which ones were the, uh, were the better ones, the ones who responded well to the either positive or negative criticism, and the ones who responded poorly. Right, right, right. People who responded well. And I've got to, got to tell you this story about this. Very short. The first church I ever worked at back in 2000, um, I led some Bible studies with st- some students. And I, I had a co-leader, who's a young lady called Naomi. Naomi worked for the uh, Universities and Colleges Christian Fellowship. She had a lot of experience leading Bible studies with students. And because there were m- boys and girls, young men and women in the, in the Bible study group, it was great to have me and her, you know, a man and a woman, kind of doing things together. And um, at one point, I suddenly thought, you know, maybe, maybe I should, you know, we should have a review, see how things are going after about a semester of doing these Bible studies in the local art colleges where we were. And so we sat down, and Naomi was there, and one of her friends were there who'd also been helping us. 
And she, I said, so how do you think things are going? And she said, well, this is reasonably well, and we've got good numbers, and this, that, that's quite good. But, and I quote, this is what she said, your Bible studies are rubbish. That's what she said. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that, I guess I asked. Um, thank you. And she said, has anybody ever taught you how to do Bible studies properly? I'm like, well, actually, no. I said, well, look. And she got out her kind of pad of paper, and she basically taught me what she'd been taught. Um, uh, observation, interpretation, application. Three sorts of questions. It's a kind of old inductive Bible study method. And I sat there for like an hour getting drilled by Naomi. Um, and it didn't, well, firstly, didn't change overnight. I took a while to learn. Secondly, I don't always do that now. Three kinds of questions. But boy, was it helpful. Just saying. So um, now, your Bible study skills are not so important as your godliness. All right, thank you. Okay, um, I don't know what I just said. Maybe that was funny. Um, Mr. Robinson. I just had a quick observation that maybe, uh, maybe I'm off track. There's this parallel verse to 726 mm-hmm. in Proverbs 's really profound i I'd spotted that and I was going to raise it, but you've raised it so well it's not um, the mouth of a forbidden woman is a deep pit. he who falls into it makes God angry it's if you've made God angry, you'll fall into it. The falling into the pit is the punishment apparently, and same in, in ecclesiastes seven twenty six he who pleases God escapes her but the sinner is taken by her, as though there's something prior to this. This sin itself is what God does in response to previous sins, and maybe it's ingratitude, or a lack for, for a married man, it's a lack of um, contentment and grace and joy and love for your own wife. For a single man, it's impatience and lust. And so in that very concrete 
sphere as sexual sin. I'm sure that's right. I'm sure that's right. And of course, that then gets generalized elsewhere because this is in Ecclesiastes 7, this is not just about where sexual sin comes from. Yeah. And so it's back to Pastor Neil, your observation about Romans 1. Romans 1 tells us that sometimes the sin is itself the punishment for some previous attitude. So while we're talking about examining ourselves, can you see we've got something else to examine now? What is it that creates in me the desire to do this sinful thing? Because it's probably something else sinful. Peeling back the layers now. And peeling back the layers will get us closer to the heart of the problem because what's wrong with the world? I am. It's quarter past eight. You're on the squirrel one. Um, I can't remember. I'm not going to waste your time. It It would take us too far off track. All right, um, we're going to finish early. I was in on time. Um, Who would ever have thunk it? Um, Once again, thank you, those of you who are here, uh, and also those of you who are not, who are watching us online. Um, Some of you are listening and have listened this far. I'm glad you've got this far, and I hope you found it helpful. Um, Thank you again. Um, Guys, don't be discouraged. Don't be... Let's not leave with feeling beaten up. We might want to leave and think with gratitude soberly about ourselves. Um, but whoever it was who, says, who said something about forgiveness uh, said, said a wise thing. I can't remember who it was now. Probably one of these teenagers. Um, let's pray together, shall we? Merciful Father, the Father of lights, the Father of truth, the Father of grace and forgiveness, we thank you that you not only forgive our sins and cover their consequences in us, but you sometimes reveal them to us so that we may repent of them more directly, that we may not repeat them. And the process of uncovering those sins that we've obscured or ignored is not a pleasant one, but we thank you that you care about us enough to do it. Thank you for the teaching of Jesus that we've glanced at this evening. The reassurance that comes from severing that ironclad link between disaster and our own evil. And yet at the same time, would you open our eyes to the terrible possibilities that lie within each of us so that we may live lives that are growing in faithfulness. For your word teaches that You sent Jesus to redeem us from lawlessness, to redeem us from lawless living. So may we be a people so redeemed. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Next week, final Bible study of the year. Pastor Neil, church calendar. Don't miss it. God bless. See you soon.